Sachs trains to become the mighty menace of the battling behemoth. When the boys discover that he has a strange new power that starts in the hardest head in the world and travels from one end of his body to the other. Hello and welcome to Camel Clutch Cinema. This is the podcast where we talk about movies that either involve wrestlers or wrestling. And today we're going to be talking about the movie No Holds Barred. I'm Guy Hutchinson. I'm here with Craig Cohen. Are you ready for the 1952 version of No Holds Barred? Yes, I am. This is uh, this is your grandparents' version of No Holds Barred, and uh, I can't wait to dig into it with you. So this is interesting. This is not the one with Hulk Hogan and Zeus. This isn't the one with the teeny wangers and the dookie. This is a totally different film, totally unrelated. Yeah, yeah. Name only. The the name No Holds Barred is a, is a wrestling term that actually is something that now people use. I noticed, I Googled it, and most of the times I could find it used was in politics. Yeah. And even going back in the 50s, I was looking in 1952 when this movie came out, and it was always, you know, Ike says there'll be no holes barred, you know, during this this campaign. Uh, But it did indeed come from the world of wrestling. When wrestling began, there were no rules. And so when you started having matches that had holds that you couldn't do, you weren't allowed to do, you know, the full Nelson in 13 states, then they would bar holds. And so if a match was, was anything goes, it was a no holds barred match. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing about this title more than the, the Hulk Hogan version. There are holds that are barred in this movie. <laughs> that's true. They, they get well into that, but I guess the title, the name was so, was so, you know, well known that, you know, mm-hmm. just by saying that people knew what it was. Craig, tell us about the earliest known use of the phrase no holes barred. Well, if you dig up the uh, Manitoba Daily Free Press from February of 1892, you'll see, you'll see an article about uh, William Gibbs, uh, a Kansas man, and Dennis Gallagher. Yeah, it's Buffalo. Gallagher. It's not yeah. Gallagher, which Gallagher. I guess back then they didn't have G's. Yeah. No, they had one for the beginning. You could only have one G in your name back then. <laughs> yeah, that was all that was allowed. So they were engaged in a wrestling match at the Opera House. And Gibbs was strangled into insensibility, and he may die, according to the uh, the report. And the conditions of the match were best two uh, out of three falls, uh, Greco-Roman style, no holds barred. So then that's that. You were quoting directly from the Manitoba Daily Free Press, February eighteen ninety two. Yeah. So if you go to your library, uh, dig out the the microfiche. That's right, the microfiche. They always had the microfilm and the microfiche. Yeah. And I, yeah. I never really knew the difference, but I always liked saying fiche. Yeah, I think the microfilm was pretty much reserved for spy movies. <laughs> and, and microfiche was for the library. No, I think one of them wasn't one of them on like a platter and one of them was a reel. I think, uh, yeah, I think you're, Could I think be, you're right? correct. But yeah, I'm not going to look it up. And, and I, I tell everyone out there, do not look it up. We don't need to know. That's all old stuff. Just like this movie. This movie came out November 23rd, 1952. And this is number 28 in the Bowery Boys film series. This is, they did 48 movies, the Bowery Boys. Amazing. Amazing. And, and actually, I'm, I was really excited when I saw we were going to do this movie because it's actually the first Bowery Boys film that I can recall watching. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I might have seen them, uh, some of them when I was younger, but this was the first time I, I went into it knowing it was a Bowery Boys film. 
I will say when we were kids, so this would be in the 80s, they were shown on TV just like the Little Rascals. They were part of a package. They were kind of a secondary Little Rascals type series. What's interesting about the Bowery Boys is that they ran into when the boys, like in this movie, were no longer boys. Yeah. Uh, they started out on in Monogram Pictures. That was the name of the company, the name of the studio. They were there from 46 to 58 in total. Uh, but they moved all over the place because in the beginning it was a play called The Dead End Kids in 1935, and then they made it into a film in 37. They got some of the original kids that were in the play, which was Leo Gorsery, Hunts Hall, Bobby Jordan, Gabriel Dell, Billy Halep, and Bernard Punsley. And Leo and Hunts are in this film. They continued on the run of the film. They were the only ones that were still in the series at this point. And at the end, uh, Hunts Hall was the only one left. So he's yeah. the main character in this film, and he was the one that stuck it out. But uh, they had they had competing series with some of the same kids. They had the little tough guys, which was which Universal put out, which had the original Dead End Kids who didn't make it into the into the later version when they when they were calling them the Valery Boys. Uh, it, it's it's a whole big thing, but basically the thing you need to know is there were 48 of these, so this was a huge, huge, huge franchise. Yeah. Now, so you've seen you've seen a lot of these, huh? I've se- I would not say a lot. I have okay. seen I would say I've seen probably. Ten of them, maybe five, right. ten. But I have seen a few of them. I do own a handful of them on DVD. I, I find them funny, but they're very inconsistent because of the span of years. If you ever think of any child actor, yeah. if you take them from when they're little kids to when they're teens, some of them don't age well. Yeah, this one was interesting. It seemed to me, at least, because it seemed really like the Leo and Hunts show. Yeah, well, most of them are. Okay. Most of at least the later ones are. Although I would say throughout the series that was the case it was you know they were the spanky and alfalfa of the series sure so it was really this was like an abbott and costello routine more than you know than a a real ensemble they really focus on those two to the extent that when you're watching this you feel like it's just those two guys at the end of the movie you're like oh who were the other bowery boys i guess the guys sitting in the booth with them occasionally yeah exactly that that was my takeaway now the the malt shop in the movie is is where they hang out and this was run by within the confines of the film a very short man Louis Dombrowski and this was the father of Leo Leo uh, Gorsery was the promoter in the film and we'll get into the plot I'm sure a lot of people haven't seen this but what you need to know is one of the two main characters this was his dad and in in 1955, just three years after this movie, he got killed in a car accident, and this ruined Leo Gorsery's life. Wow. I mean, he started drinking, and he started showing up on set drunk. He started arguing with everybody. And during the film Crashing Las Vegas, which was the last one he was in, they continued without him, he threw everything around on the set, broke everything he could, and then had a meeting with them and wanted 40% more of his salary. Hey, if you're so, going to go down, you might as well go down swinging. 
Um, so anyway, they, they went on and did a little bit more, uh, without him. And then that was successful enough to do a few more after that. So they continued till 1957. And then 10 years later, 1967, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Heart Club Band, the, the very famous Beatles album had a picture of Leo and Hunts right on the cover of it. You know, that the montage with all the, all the different, different, you know, black and white pictures that are in there with the flowers and everything. And, and he sued and wanted uh, wanted 400 bucks, so they took him off of the album. Yeah, and I guess, you know, $400 doesn't sound like a lot, but if you start doing the math and saying, well, wow, if everybody on this cover started asking for $400, yeah. uh, you know. And you- this is 1967. <laughs> $400 will get you a nice car. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the director of this film. Uh, director William Bodine. Um, born in 1892, uh, died 92. How strange is that to say? I always love that. I, I love watching stuff from an era where they were alive before the 1900s. Right. This guy was born in New York city. Had he been born elsewhere? Like if he was born in Tennessee, he would have been born in Tennessee territory now known as Tennessee. <laughs> yeah. He did direct in his lifetime, nearly 350 known films. Um, right. That's I guess- crazy. Yeah, that's, I, that's I guess amazing time. He was called William One Shot Bodine because he got it in one shot. I mean, this is a guy that started filming at the beginning of film, and you know he would get one shot, and and if if things didn't go out right, he would be like, "That's ah, all right, we'll move on. It's silent. We'll figure it out." Yeah, and he also was a, a screen a screenwriter credited uh, on twenty six films and uh, a TV series. Later in his career, he did some really, really schlocky films, and two of them I know very well. Billy the Kid vs. Dracula from 1966, and also from 1966, Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Right. It's just such a great combo. Yeah, those are actually a, a, a series of movies that I've had on my uh, to-see list. Oh, you got to see them sometime. Here's one thing I noticed. He started making movies in the early 1910s, which, I mean, when you think about it, you, you almost would assume there were no movies back then. Because the earliest movies most people know, you know, they say, oh, Wizard of Oz or, yeah. you know. And, and so, I mean, this is amazing that he was producing films back then. I was thinking about some of the titles of his films. Do you remember when In Your House used to have titles? Yeah, those they had some of the craze, craziest titles. They had crazier titles than most WCW pay-per-views. Throw me some that you remember. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I remember Mind Games. Right, yeah, with Mankind. I remember Buried Alive. Sure, sure. That's a, that's a classic one. Um, about- and I think we talked about Good Friends and Better Enemies on another episode. Yes, from 1996 with the Shawn Michaels Diesel no holds barred match. All right, all right. How about how about this one? How about uh, uh, international incident? <laughs> so that that one must have taken place outside of the uh, the United States. How about this one? In your house, twelve. It's time. <laughs> so so I was I was looking through his films and I yeah. the few that I think would sound good if Vince had read them as in-your-house titles. Are you ready? Sure. All right, here's one. Just just picture Vince saying, Welcome to In Your House, counting out the count. Yes. <laughs> here's another one. In Your House, beans and bullets. <laughs> I want you to read this one, the 1916 one right here. Oh, okay. Bombs and business. In your house, barred from the bar. 
And then, of course, this could have been the last in your house. In your house, want to make a dollar? <laughs> All right. Who wrote this movie? Um, Jack Crutcher, yes. who wrote one other film uh, in 52 and then one in 53. And that was about... Um, that was all he was done with. Yeah. But there were two other writers. We had yeah. uh, Burt Lawrence, who wrote about a dozen films, a lot of Bowery Boy films. And he wrote the 1959 Bob Hope film, Alias Jesse James, which I've seen, which is funny. It's twice we've mentioned Jesse James in this. But this is a film where Bob Hope plays an insurance agent, and he's got to try to insure Jesse James. Oh, that sounds great. It is. And uh, and there's also a third writer. All right. We have Tim Ryan, who acted in several films that sound like modern films, much like uh, the In Your House titles. In 1952, he starred in, in a, a movie called Fargo with no that's of no relation to the Coen Brothers movie. Right. And he, he appeared in a movie in 1948 called The Golden Eye. <laughs> Bedtime Story in 1941. Gotta be better than the Adam Sandler version. He oh. also, in 1941, was doing a movie called Public Enemies. Yeah, which has probably been made a, a handful of times, uh, exactly. at least with movies with that title. He's got a total of 47 writing credits. Yeah, and I mean, these, there's some big titles. Pot of Gold's on there with Jimmy Stewart, and he's done the legendary bomb, Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, which I know we've seen together. Yeah, that had the um, the the Jerry Lewis ripoff in it, right? Yeah, well, not just Jerry Lewis. It was the <laughs> Martin and Lewis clones. It was two yes. guys who what they did as their shtick was they impersonated uh, uh, Dean and Jerry on you know, on stage, and so he'd be like, "Oh, Dean," and then he'd be like, "I don't know." And <laughs> they were really good. They were great Im impersonators. But then they decided to take their act into movies, and Dean and Jerry were like, "Well, we'll sue you if you ever do that again." So yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that was the only time they got to do it. Did you notice that the cinematography was by Ernest the Cat Miller? Yeah, that was something that jumped out. <laughs> the credits on this move pretty uh, pretty fast at the in, in the opening, but Ernest Miller jumped out at me immediately, and I couldn't help but think of the cat. How crazy is that? Yeah, it was it was obviously another guy. He has 345 cinematography credits from the 1920s to the 1950s. But you're looking at the beginning and they're doing those old fashioned credits where they, you know, do still screens with like a cartoon character on them. And all of a sudden it says Ernest Miller. And I was like, whoa, wait, whoa. Yeah. So why don't you give us a plot summary? Sure thing. Uh, when Slip finds out that Satch has a super thick skull, he enters him into a wrestling match to win $1,000. After winning, he continues wrestling with his powers moving from his head to his finger to his toe. Soon, a vicious promoter is on his trail and there are no holds barred. All right. I found an article about this. This was uh, from 1953. So the movie came out in November of 1952. And then a few months later, it was playing in Ottawa. And the Ottawa Citizen had an article that Hunts Hall would be there in person before the film No Holds Barred. So you can go see it, and I'll read it directly from here. It says, coming in person, Hunts Hall above plays the champion of all wrestling champions in No Holds Barred, the newest Bowery Boys hits. Playing a wrestler, of course, means plenty of laughter when Hunts Hall does it. You'll laugh when you see Hunts Hall in person at the Elmdale Theater next Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Hunts brings with him Gabe Dell, another Bowery Boy favorite for his personal appearance. So you could go see him, and tickets were 65 cents. 
Amazing. I, I, I can't even imagine something like that happening today. Oh, God. I mean, how fantastic would it be? You know, we're, we're going to have, uh, you know, Jim Carrey or Jack Galifianakis, you know, or yeah. Stephen Carell at your local theater in Ottawa. Yeah, yeah. Doing their dog and pony show before the movie. So it, it is a fun movie, a very simple storyline, mm-hmm. which we'll go through. But, you know, as you said, I mean, it's he gets superpowers and so he becomes a wrestler. <laughs> we start out with this scene where there's a robbery. And this is, I think, a really great Hunts Hall scene. He's talking at the counter to Leo's dad, basically, but yeah. to the uh, to the proprietor of the sweet shop. And this guy's trying to rob him, hits him in the head a few times, and he doesn't even feel it. He's like, listen, buddy, I'm trying to order a banana split. Yeah, yeah. This was great because I think it uh, it instantly set the the tone for the rest of the of the of the movie. Um, and man, do I love stuff like this! Yeah, you're getting three Stooges here. You yeah, know, this is this is very familiar if you're a fan of old time comedy teams, or if you're just a fan of regular sitcoms. This is that mm-hmm. kind of comedy you're going to be getting. So he visits the doctor. The doctor says he has a thick skull. And then they come back to the sweet shop, which we left 10 seconds earlier. Yeah. And, and he sees a poster that if you if you stay in the ring with Hombre Montaña, you get $1,000. So they're like, we got to put him in the match, you know. And so then we see Hombre. We're at an arena. And I really like this scene. Yeah. Well, one thing I can say about this, out of all the movies we've watched, I think um, minute for minute, this has the most pro wrestling in it. It does. I, I don't even think you could question that. This has yeah. a ton for a movie that's just over an hour. This yeah. movie has a ton of wrestling in it. Um, Hombre Montaña was an active wrestler He was at this point. So this was not like after his retirement. And a, a very famous, well-known wrestler. He was a 325-pound guy with a big beard. And he was billed as the strongest man in wrestling. And in November of 1952, I did some digging, and so I found a newspaper article that he was sued, him and his manager, Nicky Stewart. And I'm not sure whether that was his manager or, air quotes, manager. So I don't know which one it was. But they were sued by some artist for $100 after they refused to pay for some art that that Hombre commissioned. And so he lost and had to pay 25 bucks. Oh, wow. I'm sure that's Yeah, the judge knocked it down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his name was Ombre Montaña, which was Spanish for Man Mountain. So he was like the predecessor to Man Mountain Rock. <laughs> and he was called the Pride of South America. Yeah, and this guy, he had a, a great look. And I mean, it's a look that would still work today. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I could totally see him in the ring with, you know, with John Cena, you know. Uh, he also has an interesting stat. I, I looked up some history on on people that debuted around this time. And I found that Killer Kowalski debuted against him in 1953 at the L.A. Olympic Auditorium. But Killer Kowalski had been wrestling for five years at the point when he debuted against him. And this was not his L.A. debut or anything else. This was billed as his first match. They didn't have the Internet back then, kids. (laughs) So Satch says, all right, I'll, I'll do it. I'll take on Ombre. The referee gives some instructions. And the cool thing about this movie is they show two referees. This guy they show twice. And this guy's a very, you know, buff-looking referee. And then they show another referee in the match at the end of the movie. And they have two very cool referees. Both of the referees have an interesting backstory. So tell me about the first referee. We have uh, an actual wrestling referee here, Mike Ruby, who also appeared in the gorgeous George Wagner film, Elias the Champ. Oh, classic, classic. We got to get to that one day. And the other one is a guy named 
John Indri Sano, and that's a tough name to pronounce, uh, but he was a real boxer. He was born in, in Boston, boxed 83 main events, won 80 of them, defeated five world champions, and had a career that lasted from 1924 to 1934, which sounds like a pretty good long amount of time to get punched in the head. And then from 34 to 49, he was a referee in boxing, so that makes sense that he got this role. But he also was a boxing coach for movie stars and then started becoming a boxing advisor on films and then worked as an actor whenever they needed him. And so that's how he ended up in this film. He trained a handful of stars. Oh, wow. Spencer Tracy, Cary Grant, Mickey Rooney, Jimmy Durante, Fred McMurray, Ricardo Montalban, all learned at the hands of John Indrisano. Wow. And you know what? That's a great name, too. That, that's another name that would totally work today. Yes, yes it would. So we see this match, and uh, and it starts out, and Ombre doesn't hit him in the head, you know, which is what they're hoping for is that he'll hit him in the head and hurt his hand. Yeah, uh, and so he's just beating the hell out of him. Yeah, I mean, Satch takes such a beating in this movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I was waiting for for the the, the head moment to, to happen because yeah. it's really a squash match. Yeah, and then finally it does. Uh, and he gets, he gives him a headbutt, you know, hombre headbutts him and then falls down. They give him a thousand bucks. And, uh, and then the manager, Pete Taylor, who we're going to see a lot of throughout this movie, he comes in, he's like, so uh, why don't you, why don't you let him sign with me and he can have 5,000. Yeah. And, and the, the guy from the sweet shop, who I have no idea why he's in the dressing room is like, you gotta take it. And then, you know, Slips is like, no way, you know, we're going to keep him. And, and the manager of the sweet shop, his dad is like, what are you talking about? You got it, $5,000. And so there's some great wordplay in this scene. I really liked, the, you know, when he's talking about all the things he's done. And then Slips goes, stop your autoliography. <laughs> and then the other scene where Hunts Hall is talking and, they, and, he, and he says, they call me champ. And the guy says, yeah, come on, chump. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. Sound your A when you say that. <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of great mispronunciations in this. Yeah, there's some good, you know, good wordplay, good, you know, puns and stuff. Uh, they go back to the sweet shop and now he's training there and you see him working out. And you see this saddle, like, horse exercise equipment. Did you notice this? Yes, I was wondering how that somehow related to training to be a wrestler. Right, here's why I know about this. I watched a documentary on Titanic, and it was a documentary where they were recreating portions of the Titanic for some reason. It was like the DIY channel or something. And they decided to recreate the gym from Titanic because luckily they had uh, – film footage of it. And one of the things in it was this horse simulator. And this was a, this was a, uh, a piece of exercise equipment from like the teens and twenties that did nothing. You would sit on it and you'd bounce up and down and it burned no calories, but they told people it worked later. They had a belt that you'd put around you and you put it on, you go, and it burned no calories. These were, you know, exercise back then didn't have to work because people didn't know as long as it looked fancy and exciting. And so that's what this was. And so I think the way that they use it for a punchline in this movie is because audiences in the fifties would have been savvy enough to know this was an old fashioned thing. Ah. So then we see Mike, the mauler who was a real wrestler again. He was yeah, a, a, Henry Kulky. Henry Kulky wrestled as bomber 
Kolkovich in 1939 and won 172 matches while losing three. And that's a kayfabe stat. That's, he said he wrestled about 8,000 matches. Uh, wow. But he, he won the South American Judo crown, went to Hollywood, was friends with Mike Mazurki, who was a, a you know, legendary wrestler who created the Cauliflower Alley Club. And he hooked him up with a manager. And he, his first film, I believe, was called Northside 777, which was a Jimmy Stewart movie. And he appeared in The Robe, Star is Born, Hell and High Water, Up Periscope, a lot of big films. And a really kind of, you know, brute looking guy. Plays a very funny character in this. He's like the trainer. He's very serious and gruff, and the guys don't listen to him. And then he gets the finger poke. Yeah, I couldn't believe when this happened. All right, but let's not get into it yet because the, the bigger finger poke is the next one. But he gets a finger poke, and it takes him out. Yeah. And so then we go to the match. So we're going to see Hammerhead Jones versus Brother Frank Jair. So this is this is a total change of gimmick for for our main character. He's He's now called Hammerhead because... His head hurt people. But as we found out in the last scene, the power had gone from his head to his finger. Yeah. Tell it, us about it, Brother Frank Jairs. Um, Brother Frank was actually known outside of the ring as Frank Jairs Sr. Yeah. He wrestled um, from 1945 till his retirement in 1959. Good God. And he wrestled during wrestling's heyday. Yeah. He's he died in 1990 at the age of 77. And so here he has a big match against Hammerhead Jones, and we get the amazing finger poke of doom. You would really think that, I mean, at this point in the movie, I re- and as the movie goes on, we start seeing some other gimmicks that were, were later, I guess, unintentionally used in, in wrestling, but this feels like it was lifted directly out of the movie for the WCW gimmick. Well, look at the age of Hulk Hogan. Yeah. It is very possible he saw this movie as a kid. Yeah. Even Nash, it's very possible he saw this movie, you know, on television when he was growing up. I mean, he, if he was a wrestling fan, you know, he probably, you know, would stop and watch it if it was on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He learned to do the finger poke of doom. So the match ends literally with a finger poke and then a cover, just like the January 4th, 1999 Georgia Dome match where Kevin Nash... Got poked in the chest by Hulk Hogan, and then that was it. That yeah, was the end this, of the match. And this was actually, you could say it was the beginning of the end for WCW, but another important moment happened here. This was the broadcast where uh, WCW announcer Tony Schiavone mm-hmm. gave away the results of um, Mick Foley winning the belt on Raw. Right, yeah. Which caused people to tune away instead yeah. of. He you was know. like, he's like, that'll put her butts in the seats. Nobody wants to see that. A guy who wrestled here is Cactus Jack. I mean, this this Nitro really is not just the beginning of the end. I mean, this is like, you just, you. this is them jumping off the cliff. Yeah, yeah. So we get the next match and another real wrestler. We get Ted Christie, you know, is going to wrestle him. And, and these wrestlers are all appearing as themselves, which I thought was kind of neat. Oh, yeah, yeah. And what was his gimmick this time? Did you see the gimmick change to Iron Elbows Jones? Yes. Because <laughs> the power had moved into the elbow at this point. Yeah, and there was another interesting thing that happened here. We have the, uh, the, the, the King Kong Bundy, almost the five count. Yes. He, he gets the, well, it's better than the five count. Yeah. He gets the three count. He doesn't think that's enough. He wants another three count, so he gets the six count. Yeah, and it was a fast three count. 
<laughs> Ted Christie wrestled 800 matches from 1934 to 1964. Excellent. Talk about a long career. I found an interesting little story from 1940 uh, about him. And this was Ted Christie was bringing strong claim to the world title to Legion Matt. And this is this is a wonderful article. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Ted Christie, a young Californian giant with a claim to at least a portion of the World Heavyweight Championship, will make his bow to Matt fans of St. Petersburg next Tuesday night. Christie has been matched with Tommy Nillen, the Australian kangaroo kicker, who claims to be both the Florida and Southern Heavyweight Champion. After his victory over Cy Williams on Tuesday night, the Christie-Nillen match has been billed for three falls with a time limit of one hour. Matchmaker Casey Ingram announced today, Christie comes from St. Petersburg. And after a victory over Dean Denton, who at the time was recognized as the world champion, look how many world champions we have at this point. Goodness. At the end of the one-hour match, both judges gave Christie the decision, but before he could get another shot at Denton, so he only got the, this is only the second fall, uh, he was pinned by Ray Steele, who's now recognized as the champion by all the commissioners. But he sticks to his claim and says that he's the champion. So this was a big controversy in 1940, about 12 years before this movie came out. I just love that they had multiple, multiple champions and you never knew what was going on because you had no you had no Internet to check it. Nobody could check Wikipedia to know what happened. Even this news article, we don't know that any of this is true. Yeah, it it, it, it had to be a work, right? Could have been. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it was. But I'm saying beyond that, this could have never happened. This yeah. could be Pat Patterson winning the IC title. Yeah, yeah. You know, if if people don't know this, Pat Patterson won the IC title in a tournament in Puerto Rico that never actually happened. It was just they gave him the title and they're like, come out on TV and say you won it at a tournament in Puerto Rico. People in Puerto Rico were like, I didn't see it happen, but they didn't have a way to tell anybody. Yeah. Goodness. So he's now training. He's got his power in his toe now. This is uh this is the power has moved again. And he's gonna fight against John Maximilian Smith. And he fights him and boots him right out of the ring. Yeah, and he actually, it sounds like he flies right out of the arena. Yeah, he just, shoot, real cartoony. This is another real wrestler, though. John Smith was an active wrestler at the time of the making of this movie. Weighed 230 pounds, was billed either as the Russian terror or as a good guy from New York. <laughs> Why not? Either works. Depending on where he was. Yep. Uh, so, you know, he got billed different ways. So it's really good. We see the trainer uh, uh, talking with a girlfriend at this point. What did you think about this plot twist that's coming up? <laughs> I I didn't see it coming. I just assumed we were going to keep moving along, just going from match to match. So this was kind of an, an interesting twist. It added a little bit of intrigue to the movie and uh, sets up a pretty big scene that happens later. So basically, we get this guy who wanted to manage him, wanted to train him, wanted to get his money, wanted to just give him 5000 bucks, and he could make all the money off of him. He didn't get it. So Hunts wouldn't, you know, didn't get to sign with him. So now him and Ombre, they come up with this plan. He's got a, an army of thugs, and he's got a girlfriend, and they're going to do something. They're going to do something devious to try to try to turn the tide. Yeah. I, I See, this was the, the part where it got slightly confusing because – it almost seemed like the girlfriend was going to try and find out where his power had shifted to. But then you get this whole other thing where um, a, a crime syndicate's involved. Yeah. Oh, it it gets a little dirty here. Um, 
Slip is refusing to have that fight. So, you know, they meet at the, uh, at the sweet shop. Ombre comes in. It's really funny, which is great that he's a real, you know, was a real wrestler. Um, and, and Slip won't have the fight. Satch won't train. And this feels like Rocky three at this moment. All of a sudden, you know, it's Mickey and Rocky and, and he's, you know, just posing in the sweet shop. Yeah. Right. I mean, it really oh. felt like that. I was, I was really like, wow, this is, this is exactly the story of Rocky three. Clubber Lang wants his rematch. Yeah. This movie, it almost probably set the template for, for a lot of stuff that came after it. Um, then we're going to get a charity match again, Rocky three. And so he, he, uh, he's supposed to fight somebody who's now been hit by a car under mysterious circumstances, Greg. And that again is not the first time or, or, or is not the last time that happened yeah. in a wrestling angle. It is not. Let's run through some of these. Starting off, Eddie Gilbert running down Jerry Lawler outside WMC Studios in September of 1990. And boy, Jerry took a hit by that car. Yeah, it's amazing to watch that clip, and and you can find it if you if you search properly on YouTube. I don't remember uh, what it's called. I think it's Eddie Gilbert hits, hits Jerry, Jerry Lawler with the car. car. Yeah, and it's it's exactly what you'd think. I mean, it, it is amazing. I mean, Jerry Lawler was doing like Hollywood stunt work here. It's really, I mean, it's a bump he takes. 1999, the White Hummer with Kevin Nash in his feud with Randy Savage. And then on WWE, same year, they've got the, the, the limo that hit Austin and Rikishi was apparently the driver. Yeah, revealed months later. So crazy. How about when, uh, on Raw in 2003, when, when Goldberg was hit by a, a limo and then it turned out to be Jericho that had hit him? Yeah, after after Lance Storm admitted to it. Right. Yeah, because he beat him up in the ring and then got Lance Storm to admit that he was driving, but it was Jericho that wanted him to drive or something crazy like that. Oh, goodness. How about this one? 2010, Bret Hart gets – he's getting into his limo, and a car backs into him, which was driven by the actress playing the character, was, was Shawn Michaels' wife. And so this this uh, causes Brett to have some terrible leg problem that may cause him not to wrestle Vince at WrestleMania. So this is 2000, uh, 2010. Yeah. And then that same year, he then gets into a scuffle with the Nexus backstage. So they ram into his limo multiple times that June. So within a course of like three months, Brett had two hit by a car angles. Yeah. It, 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 you know, it must have seemed fresh at the time. Yeah, there, there's got to be a bunch more. I know Big Show, Del Rio hit him with a car maybe a year ago. I know Sheamus stole Del Rio's car. I don't think he hit anybody. But, I mean, there there have been so many of these moments throughout, you know, the history of wrestling. So this is it. It's in the movie here. Yeah. So the commissioner shows up, and they, they force the rematch. And the girlfriend shows up. She's got a flat tire. Remember, she's like, oh, I, I got a flat tire. Will you help me? And they're like, no. You know, and then they finally go out and help. And they come up with this weird plan. They go to a party. You know, she's got she's going to try to uh, bamboozle them at this party. And they show up. Yeah. There's I mean, a this... whole bunch of shtick that goes on. <laughs> yeah. Satch gets disguised as a waiter at one point with a Triple H mustache. Yes. Yes. And the the the, the girl is like, yeah. Oh, you're a wrestler. You've got a wonderful nose. You know, there's a lot of a lot of shtick going on. We do finally get past that, but before we do, there's a kidnapping and torture scene where they're trying to find out where the power is, and he's like, "The power is gone," and they're just they're beating his toe with like a hammer. Yeah, 
So we get to the big final match. This is it. Yeah, and he's the, the, the big finale. We've gone just over an hour in this film. Yeah, and his goose is cooked because he does not have the power anymore. What do you think about the running time? This is a good time to ask this. I mean, it felt to me very tight. I mean, I love those old time movies. And the reason for this was so that they could put two together and do it a double feature. What'd you think of this? I, I really, really liked it because like you said, it was tight. There were no wasted moments in it. So it was just like, this is the story we have to tell. We're going to tell it. We're going to get in. We're going to get out. And everybody's going to laugh. Before this match, Mahler comes out you know, which is the, the trainer for, for Hunts Hall and Mahler sprang from an atomizer, which gorgeous George was doing at this time. So they were parroting what gorgeous George's valet would come out and he'd spray the ring with perfume. So that, cause otherwise George wouldn't get in the ring and gorgeous George would do a whole bunch of really cool gimmicks, which would have fit in so well today. You can see how revolutionary he was. He would also have oxygen in between <laughs> rounds. From Florida, because he didn't want to breathe like polluted Los Angeles air. Yeah, he pretty much wrote the book for what would become the modern day heel. Yeah, he he was he was great. There are some clips that are around on YouTube and things that you can find. He would be great. I mean, he'd come in and he had gold Georgie pins. They weren't Bobby pins. They were Georgie pins. And he would slowly take them out and the ref would come over. Hurry up. We got to have this match. He'd be like, wait, 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 wait. And, you know, he would, the ref would go to check him and he wouldn't want the ref to touch him. And then he'd, you know, his robe was so expensive that he couldn't, you know, he had to have his valet take it off of him and they'd bring like a little mat for him to kneel on in the corner and stuff. I mean, it was just everything about his gimmick was so over the top and all of it was played to make the crowd go nuts. Yeah. It was just about timing it until the crowd was, you know, into a frenzy that they, you know, he's taking these bobby pins out one at a time, <laughs> these gold bobby pins. And the crowd's just, you know, they want to see this match because they want to see Killer Kowalski hand him his head. Yeah. And actually, he was inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, what, two years ago? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was when they were in Georgia. So I think it was like two years ago. Yeah. And at the time, they were talking about WWE Studios was talking about making a Gorgeous George film. And from what I understand, this is still something they want to do. And I think that was part of why they wanted to induct him was to be able to purchase some licensing rights to him. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and I had heard at the time that there was some talk that it might be Dolph Ziggler playing him which i think would probably work pretty good he looked a lot like him you know sure yeah and he and he can definitely get the uh, the heel stuff down would be great rick the model martell also used the atomizer just like mauler's using you know yes. the big spray you know would spray the ring with arrogance <laughs> yes the essence of arrogance <laughs> so at this point in the film the power has now been transferred to his rear end yeah and it also becomes a triple threat match. Yeah, this is a crazy. This match goes crazy. Uh, you know, uh, Slip and Satch are both in the ring. The referees involved. I mean, this match really goes bonkers. He gets the win, as we all expect. And then there's a punchline at the end, which is the movie is very famous for this line. Um, he says, "He says, where's the power?" And you know, I think he whispers in his ear. You know, he's mm -hmm. like, "It's in my butt." And I don't think he says that, but he yeah. whispers something and he's like, well, we could give you a nickname. We could call you the, and he's like, you say it and we're out of pictures. 
which was, and then they, you know, da, 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 they close. And it was really a good punchline because the audience got to think of some scandalous name, whatever they thought of, you know, as dirty as they could get with it, you know, in their own mind. And that's what, that's all they had. I mean, that yeah, was it, and, you know? Yeah. And one interesting thing I, 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 t- I took away from this was he, he ends the movie as champ and I guess it's never referred to again. Yeah, no, he's that's that's yeah. I guess the next film, I don't think he starts out as champ. I think that's, I think that's how episodic these films were, though. You know, yeah, so yeah. It was like a, an episode of The Simpsons. They they do a full reset at the end. They yeah. start, or you could yeah. say that since the uh, the power had been transferred to his rear, that's how it worked its way out of his body. <laughs> but he still had to drop the title at some point. Yes, yes. Or maybe he lost his smile. <laughs> Do you think? Do you think he just announced that he had had sunny days and he lost his smile? Yeah, that's hey, that's one way to to always you know go away. Let's talk about wrestling during this time, 1952. Very important date because Capital Wrestling, the predecessor to the modern day World Wrestling Entertainment, was formed by Vince McMahon Sr. Yeah, that's incredibly historic. And we have some really cool people that were born in 1952. First two are two actors that have played wrestlers and have been involved in wrestling storylines. Mr. T, who Mm. has not only, you know, acted and performed in WWE, but acted in Rocky III with Hulk Hogan. I mean, you know, this is a guy who's got a really interesting claim to wrestling, was, of course, in the main event of the first WrestleMania and one of the main events of the second WrestleMania. Yeah, I mean, it really is amazing when you when you look back at Mr. T's career, how ingrained in professional wrestling he really was. Yeah, it was really strange. I mean, you know, they they talked to him about doing it. He liked doing it. So he did those two. Then he left for a while. Then WCW threw some money at him and he showed up there, you know. And actually, I'm missing one. In between WrestleMania and WCW, he showed up in uh, world class, the, uh, the, the Von Erich Federation, and he was their bodyguard. You know, they, uh, Terry was wrestling against Bam Bam Bigelow, and, and Mr. T was at, was in his corner, and they promoted it for weeks. You know, they were like, Mr. T's gonna be here in five weeks. He's gonna be here in four weeks. And then he was his bodyguard. You know, he stood in the corner. He was an enforcer because Bam Bam was so tough and dirty. That's great. So Mr. T, the other actor is Mickey Rourke, who mm-hmm. very famously did that film, The Wrestler. One of my favorites. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's one movie I can't wait to talk about on this show. Oh man, that's a that is that is that is a serious film. It's a, a huge departure from this, but boy, there's a lot of fun to that movie just because there's those small arenas and those small independent shows, and we have seen a lot of matches in those arenas. So I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Also born in 1952, we have uh, somebody who's made a, a, a reemergence on. WWE programming, Jim Ross, the Jim Hall of Ross. Fame announcer, with his with his, but that's evil goat, evil goateed Jim Ross that's on TV now. That's not that's not that's his twin brother. He's got the goatee. It's not it's good he, old Jr. No, no, no. That's an evil version. Haven't you watched cartoons? He yes. showed up with the goatee, so he's the evil Jim Ross. Yeah, he's like the uh, Star Trek mirror version. That's right. That's exactly it. Yes, Jim Ross. Now that now that Jerry the King Lawler had that that terrible, uh, sad heart attack that was probably brought on by hit, getting hit by that car back in 1990. Yeah, 22 years. It finally it finally caught up to him. But uh, uh, now that he's recovering, and he looked great on Raw on Monday, by the way, but he's recovering. But Jim Ross is at the announcer's desk doing a good job. I think he's uh, you know doing doing well. 
born the same year as this movie came out. Yeah. Also, and then a huge name right here uh, for 1952. What a what a year for uh, for wrestling related uh, celebrities. Randy Savage, born in 1952. Ooh, yeah, I was born the same year as No Holds Barred, and I didn't get to be in the remake. <laughs> That's right, Randy Savage, born 1952. Also born in this year was El Kanek, and El Kanek is is a fantastic luchador that is not well known. In America, I've seen a handful of matches with him, including one which, if you go on YouTube, you can find this. He picked up and body slammed Andre well before Hogan did it. Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, this is, and he's a small, small ish guy. I mean, this is a guy maybe of El Santo's proportions. So this was not, not Rey Mysterio, but this was not Hulk Hogan. Sure. And, uh, he was great and he defeated Everybody, he defeated Andre, he defeated Luthez, he defeated Hulk Hogan, Yokozuna, Vader, Owen Hart. You know who he didn't defeat? Mil Mascaris. Oh, of course Mil not. Mil Mascaris would not do the job to him. They wrestled for like two years, and Mil never, never lost to him. Uh, thankfully, Elkinex, uh mask was never on the line. Yeah, exactly. He would have lost it. I don't think he did. I don't think he ever lost that mask. I think he still has it. Uh, and, and he was born 1952. Debuting in 1952, we talked about the fake debut of Killer Kowalski the next year, but the real legitimate debut of Gene Kaniski was this year, as well as Skull Murphy. So those are two big time names. I think those are names that most people know, even if they've never seen them wrestle, if they know anything about you know, old time wrestling they may have heard that name somewhere. Oh, you know, I think I heard that, you know, he trained so-and-so. Exactly. That's one of those things you see on, on Wikipedia a lot when you go to a pro wrestler's Wikipedia page and it says who, who they were trained by. That's when you see a lot of those names. Right. So let's do some final thoughts before we determine if we tapped at this film. Uh, I really liked the pace of this film. I think they don't really make films like this anymore. And I think one of the reasons is, you know, back then, if you were going to make a children's film, your goal was to get a children's film that the kids would like and not just your two-year-old or your four-year-old or your six-year-old or your 13-year-old, but all of them. You had to you had to hit all those kids. And then you had to make it good enough that the parent liked it enough to maybe say, hey, dad, you know, the kids want to go see that movie. It's really good. I went to see it with them last week. We'll go back and see it again. You know, or when the woman down the street says, ah, they want to go to the movies. Has that no holds barred? You know, you could say, yeah, that one was pretty good. Because back then, that was how, you know, entertainment was looked at. So if they, so they don't really do this anymore. You do get, you know, cartoons, a lot of cartoons now, they try to market them to all ages, you know, your Pixar movies and the like. But you don't get a lot of comedies that they're marketing right down from the little kids to grandma. Mm -hmm. And that's what this film's doing. And that running time of an hour and, you know, eight minutes or so that is the perfect running time. If you're taking kids to a movie theater. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that attention span is short, but you know, you can squeeze that in. Um, yeah. 
I, I like the feel of it. I really liked seeing an older film with wrestling and it loved seeing these older wrestlers, you know, that probably a lot of them, this is all that's out there. I mean, I would look these guys up and I was able to find details on them, but I was able to find details by looking through old newspaper archives to try to find, you know, matches that they were in. And, the, you know, a lot of these guys, there's no Wikipedia page. There's no, you yeah. know, even like the obsessed with wrestling page on it is is very flimsy with very little information. Yeah, and, and that's really a shame because it's such an important, you know, time for wrestling or for modern wrestling that you, you know, any footage you can get uh, should be treasured. Yeah, really. So, I, so I, I did enjoy that about the film, and uh, now let's get into the to the bones of it, Craig. Mm-hmm. Let's get down. And why don't you tell me, did you tap to No Holds Barred, nineteen fifty two, starring the Bowery Boys? Yeah, I got to say, I was really looking forward to watching this, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show. And it, it's a great combination of sort of slapstick comedy, like you said, in that Al, Al, uh, Abbott and Costello style. But there's also a lot, a lot, a lot of wrestling in here. And if you're interested in wrestling at all, it's worth watching just for the wrestling matches. But then you get all this great slapstick stuff. Uh, I did not tap. All right. Well, I'm going to say, like I said earlier, I am a fan of the Bowery Boys. I have seen a handful of their movies over the years. I'm a big fan of old-time comedy teams. I love Abbott and Costello. I love Laurel and Hardy. I love the Three Stooges. I love the Marx Brothers. I love the Ritz Brothers. And I like the Gas House Kids, the Dead End Kids, and all the different variations of Bowery Boys that are out there. I love the Little Rascals, even when they got old and they weren't cute anymore in the 1950s. (laughs) <laughs> when they when they moved from you know one studio to another, when Hal Roach had said, "I've got no more hand in this," and I like I like old comedies. I like Harold Lloyd, and I like uh, uh, you know that that old Charlie Chaplin kind of style. And this, I think, really does a good job of showcasing a very cheap film. This was wrestling pictures. This was a genre back then because it was cheap. You know, wrestling is one of the first things they showed on television, wrestling and boxing, because you could just set a camera up and just shoot the ring. And it was that was it. You didn't have to You maybe have two cameras. You can cut back and forth or just one. And you're set baseball. You need to cover this guy, the guy in the outfield, this guy over here. So wrestling was an easy way to do things. And just like Westerns, they were very low budget. And this is definitely a low budget film. You've got like four locations in this movie. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that where they have the party, the the uh, uh, the bad guys hide out his his beautiful apartment. I'm almost positive that, and I tried to look at stills to see if I could compare it, but I'm not a hundred percent. But I think this was used in a Three Stooges Shemp short, where uh, the one where Larry gets they have the whipped cream and the pen, and the pen gets uh, stabbed in his in his head, and and Larry actually got injured. So if you look all that up, I don't remember the title of the show, but um, in that. That particular short, I'm pretty sure they shot it in this apartment. So this was a studio set. This was everything on this, you know, even when they're out in the street, it's a studio lot. This is a very low budget picture. But I like this kind of stuff. And as you said, there's a lot of wrestling there. So if you want to watch wrestling, this is a good movie to watch. And if you want to watch some slapstick comedy, I would say that the amount of groans to the amount of, you know, ha-has are good on the ha-ha side. This is a funny movie. It's got a lot of laughs, and it's really enjoyable. So I did not tap out to No Holds Barred 1952. 
The other no holds barred, I did tap. So this this definitely was an improvement for me, despite it having nothing to do with the other one. Yeah. So there you have it for the jockasses and teeny wangers of 1952. A lot of fun. Just a lot of fun. I really enjoyed watching it. Well, Craig, I'm glad you joined me for this one. This was a lot of fun, a different type of movie, really old one. And I apologize to people that haven't been able to find it because I know that nobody's uploaded this online last I checked. And so the reason we got to watch it was because we had a a DVD of it that was recorded off Turner Classic Movies when they ran it like six months ago. So it's it's not the easiest film to get a hold of, but if you tune to Turner Classic Movies, this is in their library, and every now and then they, they throw it on. So that's it for another one. I guess we'll see you next time on Camel Clutch Cinema. Before we go, I'm Guy Hutchinson. This is Craig Cohen. Say goodbye to the people. All right. Goodbye, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Did you hit him with your head? No, I didn't do nothing. As all I do is give him a little flick in the head like this. So you want to wrestle, huh? You're too little. We got ushers bigger than you. Leave. I got to take a crack. Don't you see? Your skills plus my skills in the ring. Tag team. Howard Patrols is John Triton. What are you doing up there? Staying away from you. No more rhymes now. I mean it. Anybody want to feel it? What's that smell? This is not No Holds Barred with Teeny Wangers and, and you know, and Ludwrench Perkins and, uh, and you know, and, and Zeus and, and Rip and Randy and Brell and any of that stuff. This is not that movie. This is the 1952 version of No Holds Barred where we get, we get an, a, a soda shop. I feel like this intro is not going well. We got to have a better intro. Okay. <laughs> Jimmy King! Oh my god, a four-post massacre! No one can survive this! This isn't even a pay-per-view!